She wanted to see kind of their perception of things. So she gave them the first half of a number of different sort of wisdom nuggets and asked them to complete the sentence. And these are the responses. So I'm going to ask you the same quiz, but I want, since our elementary kids are in the service with us this month, I want to give them first dibs on answering these, okay? So if you're out of sixth grade, keep your mouth shut. This is for people that are in elementary school. All right, so complete this phrase. A penny saved is... A penny earned. Very good. The answer this first grader said was, not much. <laughs> okay, next one. It's always darkest before, again, first through fifth graders. Always darkest before, okay, let's see what this first grader said. Daylight savings time. <laughs> it's pretty smart. Okay, next one. Strike while the... Why the what? Iron is hot. Okay, let's see if that's the correct answer. While the bug is close. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right, next one. Where there's smoke, this is for first through fifth graders. Where there's smoke, there's fire, (laughs) pollution. (laughs) Yeah, see, smoke, pollution, you get that. All right, so don't bite the hand that... Feeds you. Let's see if that's correct. Looks dirty. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. All right, let's see. One more. A miss is as good as... Now, a lot of you adults don't know this one. It, it dates back a long time. So, any first through fifth graders know this one? Let's see what it says. A miss is as good as a mister. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The phrase was, a miss is as good as a mile. It dates back like colonial days. I don't know if it had to do with artillery, but you know, it's basically the idea, if you miss by an inch or a mile, you still miss. So. But what this illustrates for us is that there is wisdom all around us in various forms and maybe in various weights. And as adults, sometimes it's easy to look back and kind of realize a season where what appeared to us as wisdom really wasn't wisdom but it's a little harder for us sometimes to recognize our shortcomings in the wisdom department when we're in the moment or the situation. So if there's marital conflict or we're making a major financial decision or career decisions or there's a struggle with our parenting or a relational conflict, we may have a hard time coming up with wisdom. We may not do as well completing the sentence as we think. So this morning, we're going to dig into James again. We've been reading through James this whole summer, and I hope you guys have been reading along. This is a great opportunity for us as a church to camp out in the same book. It's only five chapters long, so you could read it at least once a week, and then it gives you a chance to get very familiar with it and to drill down and to understand it in a way that we never could if we were just cranking through it in a three-unit sermon or something like that. So I hope you're taking advantage of the opportunity. If you've been here with us for most of the summer, then you remember it's written by James, who's the brother of Jesus. And as Ed told us that first week, we may not control everything in life, but we do control our perspective. And so the way that we look at things is very important. Real faith is supposed to show up in our actions. Uh, We learned from Dean a couple of weeks ago that we need to be on the lookout for favoritism because God does not play favorites, and he doesn't like it when we do. And then last week, words are powerful, so they need to be used in the right way. So a lot of good stuff in this book that we're studying this summer. Of all of the New Testament writers, James 
is the one who most resembles the wisdom writers in the Old Testament. So if you read Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, you find some similarities between that and James. Now, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, and a lot of times when we're studying Paul, the first half of one of Paul's letters usually is about doctrine. It's theology, it's ideas and principles and concepts, and then he switches gears maybe halfway through, and he starts thinking about practical application. So he gives you sort of the idea at first and the concepts behind it, and then he takes it and he puts it into practical application. James doesn't do that. James will start talking about something very decisive and clear-cut, and he'll be very prescriptive. He'll say, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. That's very clear-cut. And then he'll jump over here and he'll start talking about like perspective and how we should view sin and understand that temptation doesn't come from God. And then he'll run over here and he'll talk some more about you know, hey, don't show favoritism. And then I'll run over here. So he's kind of, I don't know if he was ADHD. It would be bad enough being Jesus' little brother and trying to measure up, but he bounces around a lot. It reminds me a lot of, is it the movie Up, where the dog just, you know, sitting there, squirrel, you know, and just runs off. And, you know, it's just constantly he's jumping to something new. So James has some passages where he's descriptive and he's telling us the way things are, the way that we need to understand things. He's kind of theoretical ideas and concepts, and then there are other times where he's very prescriptive. This is a time, the the second half of chapter 3, where James is being descriptive. He's telling us how things are, how we should think, how the world is, how God has created things, and even though he doesn't give us clear-cut practical application, we'll take a couple of minutes at the end of the sermon and try to think through what this looks like in everyday life. So wisdom is what James is going to talk about, and Webster's defines wisdom as knowledge that is gained by having many experiences in life. So it's more than just information, it's about experience and knowing what to do with the information. Another definition is it's knowledge of what is proper or reasonable, good sense or judgment. In other words, handling that information the right way. Now, biblically speaking, wisdom is more than just skill or information. It's about skillfully handling information. And maybe an easier way of thinking about it is that since God is the creator, he's the one that has ordered the universe, then if we want to understand how the world works, how reality really is, then we ought to get our ideas from God. And we want to, as much as is humanly possible, understand how God has ordered things, what God's values and priorities are, and how he has set things in motion, how things work. We can deceive ourselves and think that if I do this, I will get that. But that's not how reality works. There's not that one-to-one correlation. Uh, So we want to look beyond our own limited understanding, and the biblical idea of wisdom is understanding how God has ordered things, and as much as is humanly possible, understanding what his values and priorities are, and therefore how we should handle things in light of what he tells us. So let's take a look at this passage, and I want you to read along up on the screen with me. This is the passage from James chapter 3, kind of the back half. Let's read it together out loud. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven 
is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I confess uh, my inadequacy to be able to explain your word. There are uh, people far wiser than me who have spent their whole lives trying to understand your word and every implication. And that's just the beginning because you call us to live it out. So I pray this morning that you would use me as imperfect as I am and in spite of my limited understanding, would you uh, speak through your word? Help us to understand what you have to say to us. Help us to hear you and respond. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, basically, James is describing two kinds of wisdom for us. And it may be helpful if we look at it this way, kind of in two columns. He's got two kinds of wisdom. There's earthly wisdom, which is not really wisdom at all, but it harbors bitter envy, selfish ambition. It's boastful, denies the truth. It's earthly, unspiritual of the devil. It envies, it's selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil practice. Or, we've got wisdom from heaven. That's wise and understanding. It shows up in a good life. It's deeds done in humility. comes from heaven. It's pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere, and it sows peace and harvests righteousness. Now you can look at those two columns and there's a real clear contrast. And I hope it doesn't take a huge leap for you to realize that James wants us to be thinking in this category. This is the wisdom that he wants us to pursue. This is the wisdom that he wants us to desire for our own lives. And when we look at our thought processes or our motives for things or our decisions in certain areas of life, if we were to, to weigh them against these two columns, the sad thing is a lot of times our decisions are kind of characterized by these sorts of things. I know for me, it's very easy to let, you know, me first attitudes kind of show up in the way that I think, in the way that I perceive things. And that's not what James wants us to do. He's saying earthly wisdom is not what you want. Wisdom from heaven is you want. So let's unpack these two. First of all, let's think about the earthly kind of wisdom. He says it harbors bitter envy and selfish ambition. So it's a safe and welcoming place for aggressive desires for what other people have. It, it feeds a malicious, malignant hunger for what we don't have but what we want for ourselves. It plays to self-centered ambition, which is all too familiar to us. Wanting to get ahead with no regard for others, not minding if it hurts someone else or causes friction or stirs up rivalries. So it's all about being self-centered. With worldly wisdom, it's easy to be boastful to want other people to focus on our stuff and what's going on with us. We want to be the center of attention. We want people to recognize how smart we are, how good or how capable we are. We want to receive the attention for that. And denying the truth is no problem. Whether it's justifying or rationalizing, deflecting, explaining things away, it's not just dishonesty with others. A lot of times, it's dishonesty with ourselves. 
And we come up with elaborate schemes and mechanisms and patterns that allow us to justify our own actions and do things that if somebody else were looking at us critically, they would go like, oh my gosh, what did you just do? We can see that with other people. Have you ever like, been in a movie and you're watching this couple argue and the guys, you know, you're watching and the husband is like, oh, that was so stupid. Did you hear what he just said? You can recognize it when somebody on the screen says it, but you don't recognize it when it comes out of your own mouth. That's how it is for us. It denies the truth. This kind of thinking, this brand of wisdom, does not have its origins in heaven. It's earthly, simplistic. It's created by people with limited perspective who are weighed down with loads of baggage. It's completely unspiritual. There's nothing noble about it. There's nothing transcendent about it. And ultimately, it finds its source in the devil. It honors the father of lies, the prince of this world. And if he can get us thinking that way, we play right into the hands of the devil. Pursuing earthly wisdom does not honor God, but Satan. And it spreads his influence and multiplies his effectiveness. And wherever you find this kind of wisdom, wisdom that feeds envy and ambition, you're going to find disorder and every evil practice. The disorder may look like broken marriages. It could look like fights between friends. It could be financial instability, emotional brokenness, confusion. But beyond that disorder, ultimately there's every evil practice. All kinds of bad things, cheating, hurting, manipulating, deceiving, stealing, damaging. All of that is fair game. And all of that is within our grasp if we're operating in the arena of earthly wisdom. And you say, well, gosh, Alex, that seems a little bit harsh. But let's just think about it a little bit. Advertisement, that whole industry is designed to separate us from our money and to connect with needs we may not even be aware of and desires that we may have no conscious awareness of, but using those things to drive us to spend money. Remember, just do it. What company used that slogan? Nike. It's been 25 years but they doubled their market share inside of 10 years with that statement. And the idea is that, you know, if you buy Nike shoes, you will be a person of action, somebody who doesn't make excuses, a high performer. And if you think buying a pair of shoes is going to do that for you, you have been deceived. It's not very wise. Some of the brightest minds in the world give their very best efforts to get you to spend money you don't have on things you don't need. A pair of tennis shoes from Walmart will cover your feet and keep them dry every bit as well as a pair of Nikes. But the way marketing works, it convinces us that if we buy the right kind of car, the right kind of jeans, or the right kind of computer, we'll be a cool person or smart or whatever it is that we want to be. And so these guys stir up feelings that we may not even be aware of to buy things that offer only an illusion of substance. And here's the scary part. Of all people in the world, those of us in Northern Virginia, who are the most affluent, we are the ones most likely to buy the lie, literally. We are the ones that spend enormous amounts of money on stuff, thinking it's going to bring happiness and contentment. And that is not wisdom. Then there's conventional wisdom. You know, kind of the prevailing thoughts within the culture, they sort of encapsulate this idea that's popular in the point of view of people in our culture even though they change over time. So for us, maybe it's things like, you deserve to be happy. But I mean, there are movies and books written with that theme. You deserve to be happy. There are people that live their lives with that mantra. I deserve to be happy. 
Or follow your heart. You know, if you just follow your heart, you'll never get lost. What? You only live once. You know? Go for it. Whatever works for you, buddy. Follow your dreams. I mean, those are all, you know, nice things on a greeting card. I don't know that they constitute a rational, coherent, workable strategy for approaching life. And yet, in our culture, there are enormous numbers of people who live their lives according to such a snappy little phrase like that. And there's enough truth to these phrases that in some circumstances, then people begin to apply them and extrapolate them to a wider context, and they think of them as a legitimate philosophy of living. So the prevailing idea in our culture when it comes to sexuality is, look, it's my choice, my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. I have a choice. Do you have a choice? Well, yeah, absolutely. But don't forget that God, who created this whole idea, is the one who established the boundaries on it. And he put guardrails around it because he understood how damaging, when used the wrong way, sexuality can be. I mean, you think about it. Sexuality has destroyed relationships. It's brought down powerful people. It's the same glue that can hold a marriage together for decades, but it can blow a marriage up in moments. And so we have to be aware of the fact that while we have choices, absolutely, we can do whatever we want. If we're operating outside of God's boundaries when it comes to our sexuality, then we can pray all we want, but God is not going to bless us. That's not how it works. We don't get to do our own thing and demand that God bless us. Now, I'm not suggesting uh, that all earthly wisdom is bad. Conventional wisdom, advertising, slogans, any of that stuff. Some of those are kind of weak, but when it comes to earthly wisdom, if I have a medical issue, I want to get the very best earthly advice I can. I want to see a specialist. I want to have tests. I want to have a second opinion if I'm going to have a surgery. And that makes a lot of sense. So whether we're talking about investing money or uh, medical problems or you've got an expensive car uh, repair, then get the best earthly wisdom you can. But understand that earthly wisdom no matter how much of it you get, how much advice you get, it's limited in its perspective. And so with money, I want to consider interest rates and market depreciation and tax implications and all of that. It's smart for me to invest early and to set aside a good portion of my income for retirement. Some cars depreciate more slowly than others, so I let that influence my decision. And some home improvements return more resale than others. So all of that, that's good earthly advice, and we ought to factor it in. But I also need to remember that God wants me investing in heavenly treasure. And that he says, I need to give him the first part of what I earn, not what's left over. God's been generous to me, so he expects me to be generous to others. The overwhelming push of our culture is not towards heavenly wisdom. Okay, you get that? When you talk to your friends, I was so amazed when I worked in the marketplace, the kind of advice I'd hear around the water cooler or in the lunchroom, where people, I mean, what they're giving you is this earthly kind of wisdom. You know, your husband doesn't treat you well. Well, you deserve better than that. You ought to leave him. You know, your kids will recover. It'll be okay. You know, you ought to get a BMW. That's an awesome car. I mean, they'll finance it for you. You can lease it. And as if the issue was, what will they let me do? That's not necessarily wisdom. So this is the push of the culture to the left. And yet God calls us to lean towards the right and try to pursue wisdom from heaven. So let's talk about that for a while. Wisdom from heaven. In this passage, James says, you want to know what true wisdom is? Okay, here's what it looks like. It's not about 
ideas and philosophies and concepts. That's part of it. But it's like faith. It only is valuable if it changes the way that you live. It's not just something that's in your heart or in your head. It's supposed to show up in the way you live and in the way that you connect with other people. Not a life full of cool toys or one party after another. That's not the kind of good life that James is talking about here. James means a life of moral goodness, of noteworthy conduct. The kind of life that other people admire and respect because your living makes life better for them. We're blessing them. Heavenly wisdom shows up in deeds done in humility. You think about it, in a selfie-centered world, humility is greatly undervalued. Humility is like a forgotten commodity. Some translations of this passage use the word meekness instead of our humility. But in our culture, that suggests being passive or weak. And this humility that James is talking about is a very aggressive, action-oriented humility. So we're not just thinking about what we want. We're thinking about what's in the best interest of other people. We are not just considering what we want, but we're aggressively and actively considering what works for other people and how to bless them. It also means that we choose to yield to God because we recognize we are not God and He is. And so while we have a choice, we want to choose to do things His way rather than our way because we know it's going to work out better for us. So it means we're teachable. We dig into His Word. We let it inform us and shape our behavior. We pray We ask God to show us what to do, how to handle situations in a way that honors Him. And when we feel like God is tapping us on the heart, when God is prompting us to take action, we go ahead and do it, even if it looks like it's going to be costly to us because we value obedience to God over looking cool or maximizing our bottom line. This is exactly the kind of humility that Jesus modeled for us. Jesus was not passive. He could have sat in heaven on His throne watching from afar going like, wow, those people are really messed up. Mm, that's really sad. But that's not what Jesus did. He got up off of his throne and he wrapped himself in humanity and he stepped into time and space and he lived among us. And he didn't just talk about God's love, he modeled it. And he modeled it by going to the cross. That's not any kind of passive meekness. He laid down his life for us so we could be forgiven and have a connection with God. That's the kind of humility that Jesus modeled. Listen to this out of Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul who writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the kind of humility that James is talking about. There's nothing passive about it. Jesus was the ultimate example of this kind of God-honoring wisdom that shows up in good deeds and humility. So James goes on, he says, look, if, if you want to know what the wisdom of heaven looks like, it's first of all pure. I mean, above all else, it is unpolluted, undiluted, entirely holy. And holy is just a word that means set aside for God's purposes. So this is a wisdom that is of the highest moral quality because it's from heaven, and it finds its origins 
in God Himself. And we pursue it single-mindedly like James talks about in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. It's not one of many philosophies that we use in our life. It's not one point of view that we consider. But everything is focused on what does God want and how do we do it in a way that honors Him. And beyond that, the wisdom from heaven is also peace-loving. And that's because Jesus brought peace between God and man by dying on the cross, by taking away the punishment that we deserved. But that's just the beginning of it. That inner peace that comes when we know God, that's just the start of it. God wants us to experience peace with other people and to pursue peace and to do everything we can to remove barriers between us and other people. That's why in chapter 2 he talks about not showing favoritism. It's why Paul in Romans 12.18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, as much as you can control that. You don't control it all, but do everything you can to live at peace with everyone. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that God has given the ministry of reconciliation to us. So our job as followers of Christ is to be reconcilers, not just to, to try to make things right between people that we've had discord with, but maybe to encourage other people to pursue reconciliation. Instead of trying to get even or cause damage to others, our priority is peace. James talks about peace within the church, but he also talks about peace with those outside of church. He has that in his mind as he's talking about this. And if, if we're honest, we have to admit that a lot of churches do a terrible job with either of these practices. You know, a church is growing and healthy and they got an awesome service, but then you hang out there for a while and you find out there's not really peace there. There's slander and there's gossip and there are divisions. And some people are chatting about this and other people are saying, well, you know, I heard, you know, and so they get divided over that. Other churches are so consumed with what's going on for them that they forget about the people outside of the church. There was a church in the town where I went to seminary that ended up suing their neighbors because they wanted a piece of property. And I was thinking like, really? Wow, that's pursuing peace. I don't think so. So I hope as a church family, and I feel like we do a pretty good job of this, but I hope as a church family, as we grow in the years ahead, that we always keep this value in front of ourselves, that peace is our priority amongst ourselves, between us and God, and between us and our community. James says heavenly wisdom is considerate. And that's the opposite of self-seeking ambition. This kind of wisdom doesn't demand its own way. It makes allowance for others. He says this kind of wisdom is submissive. And clearly, he means, first of all, submissive to God. This is the kind of wisdom that says, okay, I've got plans here, God, but I need you to look at them. And if you say go, then I'll go. If you say scrap them and start over, I'm willing to do that because I'm submitting to you. You're the boss and I'm not. But there's also a willingness in this to submit to others. And submission just means to yield voluntarily. So we listen to their ideas and we consider them even if their perspective is not perfect. And there are even times where in our families we do this, you know, somebody else has another way they want to do things, and we may be absolutely convinced that our way is the correct way, but we choose to do it their way because the most important thing is peace. And really, who cares how the dishwasher is loaded? So we just submit to others voluntarily. Godly wisdom is also full of mercy and good fruit. You think about this. God 
has been merciful to us and abundantly merciful. Scripture says that wave after wave of blessing comes upon us. Chapter 2, James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the way that God relates to us. So if we're pursuing godly wisdom, then mercy is what compels us in the way that we relate to other people. We want to be merciful to them, gracious and forgiving and bearing with each other. And the good fruit that shows up, that's just a natural outcome of doing things in a God-honoring way. Over in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, the way you can tell whether a tree is good or not, look at the fruit. You don't get bad fruit from a good tree. You don't get good fruit from a bad tree. And so James is saying there's this connection between our inner life, our spiritual life, our connection with God, and how we live in the real world. And the natural outcome, if we're pursuing God-honoring wisdom, is God-honoring fruit. Obviously, we're not going to get it perfect every time, but over the long haul, what characterizes us is good fruit. He goes on and says, wisdom from heaven is impartial. It's free from prejudice and bias. We don't play favorites because God doesn't play favorites. We don't just hang out with the people that look like us or the people we're comfortable with because God loves all people. And God was willing to take a risk to show his love to us. So we take a risk in showing his love to other people. This kind of wisdom is also sincere. So it's authentic, it's genuine, it's honest. It's not manufactured or manipulative, it's the real deal. And the way that we act on the outside is not hypocritical. The outside matches the inside. James wraps all of this up by saying that those who are truly wise, those who understand God and what he values, they plant seeds of peace and they harvest righteousness. I wonder if he's thinking of the sermon Jesus preached where he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Maybe James was paying attention. Paul, in Galatians 6, says, look, understand, we reap what we sow. So you can't plant one thing and expect to grow something else. So if you plant peace, then over time the fruit will appear, and the fruit is righteousness, the kind of living that honors God and blesses other people and gives us a right standing with God and a right relationship with others. Okay, so that's the theoretical. That's what James says is the difference between these two kinds of wisdom. Let's take a look and see what these would be like in the real world. A couple of different levels. Let's think about this first at a bigger organizational level. As a church, we are building a building. And if everything goes according to plan, in two years, we're going to be worshiping on a Sunday morning at the intersection of Tall Cedars and Gum Springs. It's a cool building. And we have been working for really the last several years getting to this point. The site plan was submitted this month. And we've got really talented people within Gateway who are a part of the building team. We've got really sharp people on our board of elders. We've got project managers and people that handle lots of money for other companies. So this kind of project is not anything that out of the realm of what they can handle. And as a staff, we've thought about this from a ministry perspective and what we feel like God's calling us to do. So we've got some great plans. We've got an awesome architect. They listened to us. They came up with a really cool building. And, you know, we hired a capital fundraising consultant who did a great job with us, helping us figure out how to raise funds for this. And in a year or so, we're going to go to a bank, and we're going to show them how smart we are financially, and we've got this plan, and we've thought through all of this stuff. That is awesome. But the thing that terrifies us as a staff, as elders, and even at the building team level is like, okay, 
But see, even if we build the building and our plans are successful and we can pay for all of this, if God is not in it, then we've wasted our time. So we've got to make sure at every step of the way that this is God's plan, not ours. That this is heavenly wisdom that's driving this process rather than just the wisdom of you know, some people at Gateway. And I think we have tried as best we can to make this a matter of prayer. And we have a track record. We started a building campaign several years ago. And we chose to stop and hold up. Because the timing wasn't right. And I know Ed's desire is that as we go through this, you know, if God says, whoa, whoa, hold up, that we would be attentive enough to him to go, wait, what? Hold up? But, but everything's ready to go. Hold up? You sure? Okay. All right, we'll hold up. Or if God says, hey, we've got to move this thing ahead. Really? Uh, we can't do That's going to cost us more money or that's going to be more complicated or we don't know how to do that. That if God says, go this way or go that way, because we don't want this building to be the result of our plans and our dreams. We want it to be the result of His. It's not about us boasting like, hey, we're the coolest church in town. Look, we've got an awesome building and our gym's bigger than yours, so come to our church, okay? That's not what this is about. Ed feels very strongly that we're supposed to be resourced to other congregations. I mean, we've been living in the wilderness for a long time, barring other people's facilities for baptisms or using a big stock you know, tank for baptisms. So when another church needs a place to do a baptism, if we've got the space available, we want them to be able to use it. We're building ball fields for the community use. We're talking about maybe community gardens where people can come and you know, plant vegetables and stuff like that. We want to be a blessing to the people around us because that's what God-honoring wisdom looks like. And we just want to make sure we handle this well. So pray for us in that regard. All right, let's think about it at a a notch lower than that. Let's just think about it like at the family level. And we could be talking about in marriage or conflict resolution or how you deal with an elderly parent and how you care for them and balance those priorities. But let's just think about it from a a parenting perspective. So my daughter just graduated from college uh, earlier this summer. If any of you know Jen Knickerbocker, coincidentally, that's her dad, Bob Fisher, who's handed my daughter the diploma. And so Jill and I are big fans of education. I mean, we are so excited that both our kids got to go to college and they finished well. They took a lot of AP classes in high school. They both had scholarships. They were, you know, dean's list. I mean, I'm all over education. I think that's great. Our kids were involved in athletics. They were all over extracurricular activities. And those things are great. The problem, the risk, especially for those of us around here in Northern Virginia, as parents, we think that those are really important to our kids. But I worry that what we're doing is we're raising young adults who are physically fit, well-educated, successful in business, but underdeveloped spiritually and not really equipped to handle a marriage or raise a family or to handle conflict or stress or pressure when it comes. I worry that we're who are so quick to to push our kids to take advanced classes. And we will argue with them over, you know, no, you need to stay in that sport. You made a commitment and you will stick with it. We'll give them that kind of push on athletics and extracurriculars. But, you know, we don't really want to pressure them when it comes to spiritual stuff. We don't want to be honest with them about our own struggles spiritually. And we're not willing to encourage them to stay engaged with God at every step of the way. 
they get in high school and he's like, I just kind of back off. It's kind of awkward. I'll just see what happens. I think that's a parenting error. I think that's us buying into the wisdom of the world that the way to be happy is to have money and to be healthy and to be successful and well-rounded. And there are a lot of successful, well-rounded people who make a lot of money who are working on their third marriage. And they have kids who do not want to talk to them, who can't wait to get away from them. And I have a feeling that's because of choices that we in the church have made. Let's think about it at a personal level. Driving. I mean, there are lots of categories we talk about here, you know, like my decisions on finances or the way that I operate at work and handle things there. But let's just think about driving. You know, if someone were to follow you around, would they characterize your driving as more self-centered, ambitious, you know, just for you? Like, your highest priority is what's valuable to you. Or would they say, like, wow, now there's a submissive guy. There's somebody who voluntarily yields. If they followed you around, would they characterize it as every evil practice, like driving to the very end of the merge lane and then cutting over at the very last minute without a turn signal? Or rolling a stop sign so you can get in front of the the other guy and get to your destination 15 seconds early. I mean, this applies at every area of life. And so I just (laughs) wouldn't... So let me encourage you guys to not just assume that the way you handle things is according to godly wisdom. We have to work for this. We have to expend some effort and energy because our culture is shoving us towards earthly wisdom. And becoming wise in a God-honoring way, that takes some work. I know a lot of you guys are facing decisions right now, or situations, struggles, be relational, financial, medical. And so what I want to ask you to do is to take a couple of moments and pray. And I want you to share with God and then shut up. And listen for his voice. And ask him for wisdom. James chapter 1 says, If any of you lack wisdom, then ask God. He gives it generously without finding fault. So I'm going to ask a couple of people from our prayer team to come up. And if you want, man, it would be great. You could come up and pray with them. Ask somebody else to kind of come alongside you and pray for you about those situations. One that I became aware of this morning on the way in. uh, Many of you guys know Solon and Kimberly Vlasta. Solon's dad died last night, and it was cool because their family got to be with him this week, and Solon decided to stay with his dad rather than head home and get ready to go to the beach, so he was able to be there. But there are a lot of situations like that that people in our congregation face. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and they're going to play some quiet music, and I want you, whether it's in your seat or if you want to come up and pray with somebody, let's just take a couple of minutes and ask God for wisdom in these situations that we're facing. Dear Father, I pray in these next couple of minutes that you would listen to us as you always do, attentively, knowing not just the words that we express, but the heart and the feelings and the fears that are way below the surface. And then I pray that you would speak. Help us to hear your voice this morning and to yield to you, and to pursue God-honoring wisdom instead of settling for the approach of the world. We ask for wisdom now. Hear our prayers, Lord. Answer.